We are in our second week of a series that I've titled Arise. It's a walk through the, through the book of Nehemiah. It's a, a high-level view, if you will, of the book of Nehemiah survey. Um, and I've titled this message series, or this message today, How Vision is Shaped. How Vision is Shaped. So by way of review, I want to let you know that this is a this is going to be a six to eight part message series. And again, it's a story. It's one story broken up into several different parts. And the story builds on, on, as, as, a, as it goes on. And so we're only going to survey the first eight chapters of Nehemiah. If you've read the book of Nehemiah, it is packed with theological truth and packed with practical application for our lives. And so I'm really looking forward as the time goes on to what the Lord will say to us. We chose this book because of the direction it can provide for us at this stage in our church's history. I believe that God has chosen us to be a relevant church. I believe that God has designed for us to be an influential Christ-centered community who's in love with him and in love with each other and bent on advancing the kingdom of God together. I believe God has called us to model a culture of family and community where we have the chance to see what true covenant relationship and commitment looks like. We get to experience that together. And so I'm praying that God will use this series to, to stir up that passion, to stir up the thing that he's called us to be as we walk through this book and this series. I gave you a key statement last week, and I want to give you uh, the same statement again this week because I think it's going to be important as we continue our journey. Here's a statement. God uses the, uses the challenges, what he's called us to do, to shape us and to make us more like him. God uses the challenges and what he's called us to do to shape us and to make us more like him. The book of Nehemiah is a powerful book. I said it last week, and I want to say it again this week. If you, if you read the book of Nehemiah and you surmise that it's about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, you've missed the point. Because the message of the book of Nehemiah is about God rebuilding his people. It's how God uses the challenges in our lives to rebuild and reshape and revive us and to remind us of, of who he is and his great and mighty hand upon the calling that he's called his people, you and I, to do and to fulfill. We're on a mission. We are here on a mission. And every mission begins with a clear vision. I said this last week and I'll say it again this week. Mission is not the product of one person's vision. Mission is a collective effort built and sustained by passionate people who share a common vision. And I said this too last week, culture is not the, the product of one person on a mission. Establishing culture requires a, a collective effort of people with a vision to change the status quo, to change the way things are done in this world, to be a people who will no longer settle for a culture that's been dictated and defined and shaped for us by, by this world, but rather redefined and reshaped by how the word of God says that we're supposed to live our lives, the standard of his word. I believe that's what God has called us. So just like Nehemiah, 
how God used Nehemiah to redefine and reshape the culture of, of the children of Israel, God wants to use us, family, to do the same. Now, whenever God wants to move people to join him in what he's doing, he always takes us through a process, and this process begins with listening to him. How many of you know that God is always speaking? He's always speaking. The question is, are we listening to him? He's always speaking. I've heard God speak in some uncanny ways. You have too, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Last week we covered Nehemiah chapter 1 through verse through chapter 2, verse 8. And in that, that text, we found God speaking to Nehemiah. Nehemiah does three things. He listens, and then he prays, and then he responds. Capturing God's vision for our life, family, always starts this way. And here's what I want to make, I want to make plain today and, and real clear. Although this, this message series is designed to to incite God's passion for our calling together collectively, this message today is applicable to us individually too. So I don't want you to just think that this is about all of us corporately. I want you to see yourself in this message today because God has a calling on your life. He's called you to a mission. So in our passage today, God speaks through Nehemiah. And Nehemiah had captured a vision, and now he has to see it shaped into, into mission. So how do you do that? What are the steps for shaping vision into mission? There are three. First, you have to see it. And then second, you have to share it. And then third, others come alongside you and they strengthen it. You have to see it. Clear vision requires two sets of eyes, natural eyes and spiritual eyes, or should I say spiritual eyes and then natural eyes, vision. You ever bought a new car? Okay, have you ever bought a car at a car dealership? Yeah. <laughs> Some of y'all hesitant, yeah, pastor, I bought a new car. I, I, I'm not going to ask you to give more because you bought a new car. <laughs> So listen, so listen. So you go to the dealership, and I was in sales for 27 years. And so, and so you go to the dealership, right? And the first thing the salesman wants to do, he says, hey, how you doing today? You in the market for a new car? Yes, you are. You don't know, but you are. Come here, let me, what are you looking for? Come here, let me show you this car right here. Let's open the door. See how tight it is. Get in, get in. Smell that new car smell. Huh? What's he doing? He wants you to see yourself driving this car, watch this now, before you even put a dime down on it. He wants you to see it on the inside because he knows that if he can get you to see it on the inside, that's the first step to you acting on it and it becoming a reality. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and Nehemiah asked his brother Hanani, he said, listen, he said, tell me about the condition of the children, of, of the exiles that are still there, and tell me about the condition of the city. And then, listen, he listens and he absorbs what Hanani and, his, and the entourage of exiles coming from Jerusalem to Susa 
tell him. He sits back and he absorbs it. He listens to it and it changes his life forever. He internalizes it. He allows God to speak to him as he prays and he internalizes what's going on and he catches a vision for going and doing something that will make a difference in his people's lives. He sees it on the inside. Here's what he sees. I'm the cupbearer to the king. God has positioned me for this. This is my calling. This is my mission. He has a vision that's on the inside of him and is driving him. Now, in chapter 2, verse 2, Scripture tells us that Nehemiah was afraid. That he was going to approach the king with this vision that he's seen, but he's afraid, right? And I think that he was afraid for two reasons. Here's the first. He was the cupbearer to the king, right? Now, the cupbearer to the king was responsible for setting the ambiance. Remember I told you that last week? He was the person that was responsible to make sure that the party was, was, was going on, it, it was happening, that it was hopping, that it was jumping, that people were having a good time, right? He was responsible for that. And at this particular party, Mrs. Artaxerxes was there. That's the, queen, that's the king's wife. She was there. So now he's especially nervous because he wants to make sure things are going well at the party. That's one reason why. Here's the second. Back in, I think it was 586 BC, King, ne king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had invaded Judah. And he ransacked Jerusalem. And he took back with him to the Babylonian Empire, which would later become the Persian Empire. He took back a bunch of exiles with him, right? The city laid in shambles. The people of Israel were exiles. They were destitute. They were the laughing stock of every community around them. 120 years go by. 120 years. Most everyone... In Nehemiah's time, when this first happened in 586 B.C., they're dead. They're gone on now. There's no one to give them identity. They had lost their culture. You see what I'm saying? They're destitute. They're the laughingstock of the communities around them. So now we fast forward 120 years, and King Artaxerxes is, is in rule now. And four years into his rule, four to six years into his rule, the Jews began this project wanting to rebuild the city. Nehemiah makes the trek down from Susa to Jerusalem to help. There are some people there that don't want to see the Jews uh, uh, understand their identity, so they're trying to keep them under their thumb. So they, they write a letter to King Artaxerxes and they say to him, the Jews are in rebellion. They're in sedition. And if you allow them to build these walls, they're going to rebel against you, and they're not going to pay you what you're due. So King Artaxerxes writes an edict that anyone who's found building anything in Jerusalem is subject to, to, march to, to the laws of the land, even punishable by death. Nehemiah is standing in front of this king. He's about to tell the king the mission that God has given him. He's afraid. 
Because not only being the cupbearer and not setting the ambiance, not only that, that, that could mean death for him, but this could certainly mean death for him. So he's afraid. But I'll tell you something else. I don't think Nehemiah was so afraid of, of death by the king. I don't think so, because here's the deal. Remember, he's a cupbearer to the king, and one of the cupbearer's responsibilities was to do the wine tasting. You know, he had to sample the wine. You know, wine tasting is, is not a new thing, you guys. <laughs> you know. See, Nehemiah's job was to taste the wine, and then I could just hear Artaxerxes. Taste the wine, Nehemiah. Wait for it. <laughs> Wait for it. Yeah, swirl it. He doesn't die. You're good. <laughs> so see, he puts his life on the line all of the time, sometimes three or four times a day. So I'm not sure if he was really afraid of death. Here's what I think that he's, he's more afraid of. I think he's more afraid of, of not getting this right. This is his only opportunity to stand before the king, to complete the mission that God has sent him on. So he's before the king. He's smart. He doesn't even mention Jerusalem in this passage at all because he knows that to mention Jerusalem might spark something negative. But I think he also knows this. Proverbs 21 and 1 says this, that the heart of the kings are in the hands of the Lord. And I know that Nehemiah, I believe that Nehemiah understood that if God called him to do this, God was going to continue to make the way. So he stands before the king. So Nehemiah caught the vision with his spiritual eyes, but now the king has, has okayed him and approved him to, to go back to Jerusalem and, and begin to rebuild the walls. Now he's about to view things with his natural eyes. He's seen it on the inside. Now he's going to see it in reality. Here's a couple of things I want, I want to note here. First of all, it's a two- to three-month journey from the Persian Empire to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah gets there, and Scripture tells us that he rests for three days. I believe he rested. I believe he prayed. I believe he thought through his next steps. So he rests there. And then the Scripture tells us that Nehemiah goes into stealth mode. He intentionally surveys the land and the condition of the city for himself without telling anyone what he's doing. And here's what he discovers. He says, it's worse than I ever imagined. It's worse. Let's pick it up at verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days, and then I arose in the night, and I, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Listen. Listen to me. There are times when God tells you to do something that for you to tell someone what God has told you to do before he tells you to act on it, is out of season. There are times when God tells you something to do and it's for you to internalize, to cast a vision for yourself before you tell anyone about it. Let me say it a different way. There are times when God tells you to do something and he wants to work through you for you to see it on the inside and for you to see what's going on, what he's getting ready to send you to before you tell anyone. Why? Because there are people that are doubters. I'm going to talk about dream killers in a minute. <laughs> so he says, I told no one what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
There was no animal with me but the one which I rode on. And I went out by night, the valley. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate, and to the king's pool, that many historians believe that's the pool of Salom. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Here's, here's the deal. Nehemiah said things were so bad. The, the ruin and the destruction was so bad. It was worse than I thought. He said it was so bad that, that, the, that the donkey that I was riding on couldn't even get past the rubble. And I'll tell you this, I think it was worse than that. It was worse than he imagined because remember the dung gate, that's where they took all the trash and the refuse. That's where they took the, the waste of the people. It was broken down. And so I can imagine the infestation of disease and rats in the city. Can you imagine that with me? It's worse than you thought. You ever watch the show Hoarders? <laughs> My wife's got it bad, man. <laughs> she, she loves Hoarders, man. But I, and I'll tell you why in a minute. I'll tell you why in a minute. You know, in Hoarders, hoarders what, what happens is, you know, these people, they experience a traumatic experience, right? And this traumatic experience causes them to spiral. And they just lose control. They, they lose their, their self-confidence, their self-esteem. They lose their identity. They forget who they are. And it just goes on and on and on. Relatives come by, and then they don't come by for a while. And then all of a sudden, they get a call. Your relative's in peril. And so they go, and they see their relatives. And they get there, and they say, it's worse than I thought. There are rats running around. There are cockroaches running around. There's feces in the house. Trash is in some rooms stacked all the way up to the ceiling. It is worse than I thought. Nehemiah gets there to the city, and he goes out, and he, he spies on it. He comes back, and he's, he's in turmoil because it was worse than he thought it was. So I believe he goes back. He prays to God, what am I going to do? He sees it on the inside first. God sends him. Now he sees it with his eyes for itself. And then he takes the next step. He shares it. He shares the vision. See, Nehemiah already knew what he was called to do. The question was, how do I capture the heart of the people to get them to join me in what, in what God has me doing? You know, in his book, determined, Be Determined by Warren Wisby, Wisby states that leadership is the art of getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. Nehemiah was a great leader. Listen, listen to what verse 17 says about Nehemiah. So then I said, you see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lays in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer Derision. 
He says, come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so we no, may no longer suffer derision. In other words, so we will no longer be the laughingstock. And here's what he's doing. He's appealing to their sense of reality. He says, listen, they're in a mess, man. You're in a mess. This city's a mess. And then he goes on and he appeals to their sense of dignity. That's what derision means. It means that you've lost your way. You're the laughing stock. And I love what he does, family. He doesn't blame them for anything. Instead, he identifies with them and he joins them in their plight. And he says, listen, we're going to do this together. This is our problem. This is our problem. You ever have somebody put you down? You ever find yourself in a situation where it feels like you've been punched in the gut? Ever found yourself in a situation where, where the thing that you thought that, that you, could, you could count on has been taken away from you? You ever find yourself in a situation where, where you believed that things were supposed to go a certain way and they didn't and now you're distraught? You ever had that happen? Isn't it amazing how when we find ourselves in that stage of life, God always sends somebody talk to us, to get us back on track. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. He says, listen, you've been made a mockery. You've been jeered at. You've been talked down to. But don't you know who you are? I know it's been 140 years, but don't you know who you are? You are the offspring of Abraham. You are the children of Israel. You are God's chosen people. God has his hand on you. Now is the time for you to catch the vision that this thing can be built. This culture can change. You can rise up and become who God has called you to be. That's what he's saying. You're better than this. You can do better than this. And then he does something that I think is masterful. He underscores his own credibility. He gives his own testimony, and then he gives him some background for how he got there. Look at verse 18. And I told them that the hand of my God had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. In other words, God has changed the heart of the king. That's why I'm here before you. And the words that the king had spoken to me. And then they said... Let us rise up and build. Then they said, let us rise up and build. Remember I told you that vision, an accomplishing vision and mission is not the product of one person's vision. Hmm. Mission doesn't happen until others catch the vision. Because when others catch the vision that God has placed on the inside of you, then they will strengthen you for the work. That's the third point. How vision is shaped into mission, you first have to see it, and then you have to share it, and then others will strengthen it. But how many of you know that just because God calls you to do something doesn't mean it's going to be easy for you to pull it off? 
Tell you something, man, when God tells you to do something, you are going, when God tells you to do something and this is will, you can bet that you're going to face opposition. You will face opposition. Everybody say opposition. opposition. You will face it. Opposition. Now, I want to take you back to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Nehemiah writes, he says, Then I came to the governors and of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Dream killers. Dream killers. These people wanted to keep their thumb on the people of Israel. They wanted to keep the Jews down and, and prevent them from getting any sense of identity. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. When God, when God tells you to do something, there will be people that will oppose you. When God tells you to do something, the devil gets involved because God, the devil knows that if you ever step into vision, if you ever step into mission, if you ever step into doing what God has called you to do, you not only influence, it's not only influence to you, but God uses you to influence others. There are some people that you are called to reach that I can't reach. There are people that you are called to reach, Dennis, that I can't reach. There are people that you are called to reach that I can't reach. And the enemy knows that if he can keep you from understanding your identity, he will keep you from fulfilling the purpose of God in your life. I think that's a pretty good place to say amen. <laughs> Dream killers, man. So who are these cats? Sam Ballot, Tobiah. Approximately 37 years after after Nehemiah had began to rebuild the walls or had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, there's a piece of papyri that was found that showed that Samballat was the governor of Samaria. And when Nehemiah came to, to Jerusalem, Samballat was in control of that region, and he wanted control not only of Samaria, but of Jerusalem and, and of Judea too. He had a lot to lose. Tobiah the Ammonite was possibly the governor of Ammon. And, and Ammon was a smaller bordering city to, to Judea and Samaria. And it's believed that Tobiah was in cahoots with Samballat in a position of servitude. Later on, we're going to see about this cat named Geshem. Geshem is an Arab that, that probably controlled all the trade routes that surrounded Jerusalem. These three men, that's what I want you to see. These three men were in control. Samballat to the north, Tobiah to the east, Geshem to the south. They had it going on. They had their own little network. Nehemiah was a threat to them. So here's what they do. They ratchet up their aggression. Look at verse 19 and 20. Chapter 2. You guys with me? So when Sam Ballot the Horonite, that just sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm a Horonite. <laughs> and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered and despised us. And said, what is this thing that you are doing? And watch this now. Are you rebelling against the king? Remember what I told you? 
about, about um, earlier when the children of Israel, when the Jews tried to rebuild their city and, and the, the edict came from, from Artaxerxes because uh, the people had sent the, the letter to Artaxerxes and said, you know, these people are in rebellion. And Artaxerxes puts out the edict. Remember I told you that? So now what these guys are doing is they're coming back. You see, this is what stopped you the last time. So are you in rebellion to the king? Huh? Are you in rebellion? You tell me something, man. The enemy doesn't care how he gets you. He doesn't care how he gets you. And I'll tell you something. If you don't fortify yourself against the thing that he used before to get you, he'll use that same thing again to get you again. Oh, I know I'm preaching today. I feel my preach on. So, they ratchet up the aggression. They call them losers. They jeer and despise and once again talk down to them. You can't do this. What makes you think that you can do this? You don't have anything without us. Everything that you've ever been given was given to you by me. You will fail. You tried before and you were unsuccessful. You're going to fail again. I want you to notice Nehemiah's response. And I want you to notice that throughout this book, he gives the same response every time. He doesn't change. And he never enters into a dialogue with his opposition. And I'd say this. Satan is a master at twisting things around for his good. He loves nothing more than to get you into a dialogue because you cannot win if you get into a dialogue with him. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden with Eve. He got Eve into a dialogue, and look what happened. That's why in Luke 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness and he had fasted 40 days and the enemy came to him to tempt him, you don't see Jesus dialoguing with Satan. Jesus takes him to the word. No, no, listen, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone. He takes them to the word. He doesn't enter into dialogue with them at all. You guys see that? Yeah. So Nehemiah never engages them. He clarifies the truth, but he never enters into dialogue with them. But he does respond to them. Here's his response. Look at verse 20. I'm getting ready to close. Man, I loved it. I, I, loved, I loved teaching this book. It's a good book. And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. The God, you, you, can't do any, you can't do anything. We've given you everything. The only prosperity that you have is what we've given you. Hey, well, let, let me tell you something. New day in town. New sheriff in town. The God of heaven, our God, will make us prosper, not you. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise. Everybody say arise. arise. We will arise, and we will build. We are going to build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And here's what he's saying. We're not at a deficit here. You've held us down long enough. We're not at a deficit here. We have everything we need, and our God is on our side. This is not your concern. You're not even a child of God. This is our concern, and we're going to do this with the help of the Lord. Hmm. How do you respond to dream killers? 
When someone comes to you and says, you know what? You'll never be successful at that. You've been struggling with that issue all of your life. You'll never be any good. Your work is not good enough. Your dad never loved you, so how can you expect anybody else to love you? You'll never find meaningful relationship. You'll never be in intimacy. You'll never experience intimacy with God. The enemy tries to fill our our minds with those things, and he'll use other people to do it as well. How do you respond? How do you respond to dream killers? Here's how we're instructed to respond in Scripture. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, he says, listen, you stand. He says, you put on the whole armor of God and you stand firm. We're not instructed to run or cave in to opposition. We're instructed to stand. And then James instructs us in James 4 and 17, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't dialogue with him. You resist him with the word of God. And then you do this. You grab someone that shares the same passion for Jesus Christ as you do. You grab them and you share your vision with them and ask them to come alongside you and they will. Every time we persevere through opposition, we get stronger. Every single time we persevere against opposition, we get stronger. But here's the thing. We were never meant to go this thing alone. Ever. Ever. And next week in chapter 3, you're going to see the next two principles. You know, we, we can skirt over that because it's just, and next to this person was this person, and next to this person was this person. No, there's something really significant about the next two principles, about being side by side, locking arms with people who love Jesus and love you. Why don't you stand with me? may be here today and this message found you. Maybe you've been letting the enemy beat you up too long. Maybe you've been listening to the wrong voice. Maybe somewhere along the way you've lost your identity. You've lost the fact that you carry all authority in the name of Jesus, and the enemy's been just handing you your head. God wants to change that today. God wants to change that today, but he wants you to see things differently. He wants you to see on the inside that the greater one lives in you. With every head bowed and every eyes closed, eye closed, I want to ask you this. What prevents you from 
recapturing the vision that God has given you for yourself. What prevents you from stepping into the thing that God has called you to do both personally and corporately in this church family? What prevents you? Whatever it is, you don't have to walk out of here carrying that anymore. Father, I pray for for this time. There's someone in here right now that, that after this message has seen that you've called them, you've, you've placed a vision in their, in their heart and in their mind and you've called them to do something and somehow along the way they got derailed. Lord, I'm asking you to rekindle, rekindle the fire and the passion on the inside of them to step into what it is you called them to. You may be here and maybe you've never embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe this God who has been faithful to his children generation after generation is unknown to you. He's foreign to you. He wants to get to know you. He loves you like nobody's business. You don't have to walk out of here today outside of relationship with Jesus. You'll never know the sweetness of true love until you embrace the love of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and, this, and for the first time you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, every head bowed, every eye closed, I want you to slip your hand up. See you. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. Now, I'm not going to embarrass you, so here's what I want everyone to do. I want you to pray this prayer with me, and I want you to, to, to pray this prayer as if God is, is standing there with you and Jesus Christ is standing right by your side because I promise you he's right there right now. And so for the sake of, of those who have been bold enough to raise their hand, I want everyone to pray this prayer with me. Dear God in heaven, I surrender my life to your son, Jesus. Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart Cleanse me of all my sins. I confess to you right now that I need you. I ask you, Lord Jesus, that from this day forward, you will be in control of my life. I surrender my life to you. I surrender my heart to you. If you believe that, the scripture tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that you shall be saved. And we want to be the first to welcome you into the family of God. Don't we, family? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. Give it up.